Welcome to Perimenopology, where we explore and converse about what it means to transition out of the young, hot, fertile, and fuckable box that our society labels as most worthy when you are socialized as a woman. Around here, we're all about body literacy and talking about the topics that society tells us are unimportant or inappropriate. I'm Michelle Kapler, reproductive acupuncturist, Chinese medicine practitioner, and master feminist confidence coach, and you've got episode number 16. Hello, hello, my friend. Thank you so much for joining me here for another episode of Perimenopology. Today, I'm sharing my conversation with my friend and colleague, Vanya Sukola, a feminist psychotherapist that I happen to practice in Toronto with. And we are talking all about the crone archetype. This is a concept that I was introduced to when I was completing my advanced certification feminist coaching when we were discussing the concept of ageism, where in Western culture, the maiden and the mother archetypes are revered and seen as useful and valuable. But as for the crone, she's seen as old and dried up and not very important or useful. So my conversation today with Vanya is to talk about all of the awesome things that can happen in our bodies and our brains and our communities when we are becoming the crone. So today we're going to talk about what is the crone, rights of passage, societal conditioning, and how that can inform our experience, ways that we can cultivate and support our own pleasure and creativity in this stage, and of course, some advice for folks who are just getting started in their own cronehood, no matter what their age is. So before I share my conversation with Vanya, I want to offer her professional bio. Vanya Sukola is a registered psychotherapist. For over 20 years, Vanya provided support to people who have experienced trauma due to gender-based violence and abuse. More recently, Vanya has established her private practice that focuses primarily on reproductive mental health, birth trauma, and the transition into parenthood and the intersection of former trauma that impacts the journey into parenthood. As a feminist therapist, she works from an intersectional feminist, anti-racist, anti-oppression framework. Her approach is relational and integrative and mainly pulls from somatic and emotion-focused styles of therapy to help your body, mind, and soul heal. Vanya is also the mother of two school-aged children and is surrendering into her identity as a witch and being in the phase of the mother archetype. So without further ado, here is my interview with Vanya. All right. Welcome, Vanya. Thanks so much for being here with us today. Ah, It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for inviting me. So this has been a bit of a long time coming. I've been following your work for a couple of years now. We've both been in these mutual Toronto birth professional groups, and I've seen your work and you've probably seen mine. And I'm so excited that we get to come together and have this conversation today. We booked that conversation on Zoom a couple of weeks ago and we were like, wow, this is amazing. We should be recording this. So we're going to do that today and it's going to be amazing. So I shared your professional bio with the audience already. So I'd love it if you would tell us a little bit about how you got into doing this work. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question is a nice kind of like place to land and foundation. So um, I think for me as as a therapist and as a feminist therapist, you know, um, one of the things that really feels important to me is it, it comes from lived experience. And I speak with my own lived experience, right? Um, as, as a white woman with lots of privilege, that's important for me to also acknowledge. Um, but that because I also know 
um, what's helped me and what support I need, it comes from that place of compassion and knowing. And I think I've always known I wanted to be a therapist, like since I was in high school and I had my own maybe unhealthy and not so happy relationships with other people. But I witnessed that with my girlfriends, especially. And, you know, my mom turned to me for support and secret keeping and guidance ever since I was also that same age, you know, 15, 16 years old. So being a therapist is what I've always known I wanted to be, like really since a young age. But more specifically, when I became a parent myself in 2009, that's when I realized um, I wanted that village that everyone talked about. Like, you know, we say we have a village, but it wasn't very obvious and it wasn't very easy to create. And it took a lot of work, but it took a lot of my commitment knowing that we're not supposed to do this thing alone. We're not meant to do all this alone. We're social creatures. And so... Um, I realized um, in about 2014, 2015, that I really wanted to provide support to parents um, and people transitioning into parenthood, however that looked. And especially if they had a history of trauma, whether it was birth trauma specific or a history of attachment wounds or relational trauma, knowing um, that we don't have to be alone in it. Um, and providing therapy was the way that I could do that to help them feel less alone. I love that so much. And I love that idea of creating the village. And that's kind of what we're here to talk about today. We had decided to have a conversation about the crone archetype and how we can create um, a community of like-minded people as we move through this next transition that can sometimes be a little bit lonely for people. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But for those of us who are not familiar with the crone, can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what it represents? Oh, yes. Oh, so one thing I think in talking about the crone, I kind of have to acknowledge like the triple goddess, right? That these main archetypes, those of us that um, identify as women go through, but we also don't have to be a woman to kind of experience these archetypes. We don't have to um, even really be committed to, you know, what's now known as the divine feminine to also acknowledge that we can carry both feminine and masculine qualities in all of us. And I really love seeing this resurgence of recognizing that is important. Um, but it comes with that maiden state, you know, first and foremost, the younger woman or the younger human outside of childhood, who's really starting to get to know herself or themselves and really starting to know what gives them pleasure and where they have more agency than they used to, but really being in some ways selfish, but also self-serving and like learning, like, this is what I want. Um, and it, feels complex and complicated. And yet we kind of need to recognize that we need to be um, more intentional with the way that we live. And then the mother archetype is the one that we start to notice um, these self-mothering, inner mothering qualities. We don't have to be mothers that we give birth to children to be in our mother archetype, but it's also mothering the things we love, whether it's gardens or our home or our community um, for me, like my my business feels like something else that I mother and care for, but also mothering myself and really noticing like um, what helps me be sustainable in my life is to care for myself and for the people and the beings that are close to me. And also in a more broader um, perspective too, um, part of my 
definition of feminism is including it's not just me that I'm caring for. It's a bigger global community. And that's where the change can happen. But the crone is um, that wise woman, you know, through experience and through life um, and being able to really recognize in elderhood um, all the wisdom and guidance and life that's been lived to kind of revere it and respect it in a way that I think has also been lost. You know, like we might technically appreciate mothers um, and I can I can have a whole different podcast episode about that, but the crones feel even more put aside and um, reclaiming their rightful place, you know, in the wise elder, wise women kind of community that's important. So crone is this beautiful opportunity of acknowledging someone's wisdom from experience of life. That's how I see it. I love that. And I think that it is true that at least in our culture, as North American people, there really is this kind of forgotten part of a lot of people's lives that we don't value in our society. And so when somebody reaches this age where they're moving past that mother archetype and they're moving into that next stage, it can be a bit of an identity crisis for people because they're used to being told both explicitly and implicitly through culture and through friends and through family that your value as somebody who socialized as a woman is to either be young and hot and skinny and attractive to the male gaze or to pop out a bunch of kids or to play that role of motherhood. But then once you're getting past that, it can become a little bit of a mystery in terms of what is my value and how do I move forward and what is my role in society? So I think those are all really interesting questions to ask. And I think that's something that historically has been a part of moving through these stages of life is that whole rite of passage. And we were wanting to talk a little bit about that today. And in our culture, we celebrate a number of rites of passages that we experience as folks who are socialized and identify as women. I remember celebrating with my mother when I got my first period. And we certainly celebrate and revere the admission or transition into that club that we call motherhood. But this journey into perimenopause and menopause is beyond and beyond is, you know, barely acknowledged or talked about, let alone celebrated or revered. So why do you think that is? And what are your thoughts on all of that? Oh, yeah, that really resonates with me, Michelle. And I think one thing that comes to mind right now is even what you're just talking about, too, with like, what is seen as our role that we were taught to be, you know, as mothers or carers of others, like as a therapist, it's not lost on me that I professionally and personally care for people all the time. Um, But then when I become crone or closer to crone, I'm not of anyone else anymore. I've of myself, right? I'm not here necessarily to care for children, like even becoming a grandmother, as much as I'm curious and have some hope to be that, that doesn't mean that my main role in my elder years is to care for my grandchildren, right? And even just noticing that, that part of that reclamation, going back to that word of feeling selfish, right? That if we are not making children or caring for children or working anymore, it's almost like our role that's attached to caring for someone else has been lost and therefore we no longer matter, right? And so just noticing that and then in such a stark rite of passage, it's like losing our menstrual cycle and no longer bleeding means we're no longer, right? It's like noticing how those things go together and it's not necessarily celebrated because what 
you know, we complain about our period. And then when we no longer have it, it means we're less of a woman. Oh, it gets so messy in that nuance, right? To, to want and to not want at the same time and how it defines us. I want to take it back to that idea of being of service to others, because again, as people, as people socialized as women, we're taught that we need to put everybody's needs above our own, including our children and our parents and our family and our friends and society at large, even um, in a lot of circumstances. And so it can be a little bit jarring to even ask the question of, well, what do I want? You know, how do I want to carry forward the rest of my life? Because I think that, you know, perimenopause is a time when those questions just naturally come up, sometimes out of necessity and survival because of the physical things that are happening in your body. Um, and so, what do you think that some questions could be that people could ask themselves in order to flesh that out for themselves? Mm, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, one thing I was actually just noticing today, just as a coincidence, um, I woke up with a really bad headache this morning and I actually took stock of my day and I was noticing, you know, what can I do today to make my day a bit easier? Right. And even that feels like such a luxury, right? That like finding the easy way out of something, right? It feels like such a luxury or privilege, right? Or a cop out, right? And so what I've been looking at is really questioning with some critical lens, like, why do I have this connection or this mm, belief system? Right. And I think that's from our generations or, you know, very much tied to white supremacy and capitalism. Like we've been taught to be doers, not beers. Right. I've been taught like I have to keep doing this. Like I couldn't cancel any client today because I owe it to them. And yet what version of me is showing up then if I had this really bad headache? Right. And so sometimes it's at the expense of ourselves that we keep offering. And then I notice like there's martyrdom that that falls into and um, people pleasing. So I'm really starting to like question with my own self, from what place am I offering me from my best self or this serving self that's been taught to be in servitude or caring for others. And so something that I've been um, working on um, as I'm trained in somatic therapy is really noticing what is my best self today with a headache? How can I offer my best so that I'm still centering my own needs so that whatever is left of me comes from that, right? So I can't be less regulated than the clients I'm supporting. Technically, I'm supposed to be at a better place than when I'm with my children if they're having a hard time. But what does that look like, right? So today, you know, just using my own personal experience from today, today it meant not doing as much in the morning where normally I help with the morning routine and getting the kids out the door. It meant really slowing down and just giving myself so much permission to just take it moment by moment. Right. So I think it means really learning to listen to our bodies in a way that also similar to overriding other parts of us, we've been taught to not listen to our body's wisdom. You know, it feels um, dangerous sometimes to just really notice but it's such a reclamation. A hundred percent. And I think that, that that little point that you brought up about, you know, you had this awareness of, okay, well, I think that the way to make this day as easy as possible for me would be to not participate as fully in the morning routines that I usually do. And so people might actually have that awareness of... Mm -hmm 
Mm-hmm. This is maybe what I need to physically do to make my day better, easier. And, it, you know, just to give other examples, it could be something like, well, I'm having tons of hot flashes and I need to ask my partner to sleep in a different room. Or I'm really tired because my periods are really heavy. And so I need to ask the people around me to do more than they usually do. And so even if we have that awareness, I think sometimes what immediately follows when we consider actually actioning on these desires is this tremendous sense of guilt, which comes from what you mentioned earlier, which you know is essentially capitalism and the insistence on always being productive and giving, but then layered on top of also this idea that we should always serve others before we serve ourselves. So it's really interesting to observe what comes up and then just asking ourselves intentionally, well, does that actually align with my values? Is that the example that I want to set for the people around me or my children or whoever's watching? Interesting questions. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Right. And it makes me think too, like if I also start to minimize a need, right, then I'm also teaching people that they don't have to listen to my own needs as well. Right. Let alone, right. Just like carrying that. Right. So I know for me, like I'm getting all sorts of hot flashes, usually at night when I go to bed feeling one way, and then I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm like hot and sweaty. And so I have to notice like, what do I need now to keep sleeping? Right. And tending to that need. So I think that's a, a big part of it too, is giving myself permission just to listen to myself, let alone ask others also, right? To mirror that back. A hundred percent. Yeah. One thing that you had suggested that we touch on was this idea of creativity and pleasure. And I think that perimenopause and menopause and beyond gives us this opportunity to add more of that into our lives. So it's taking it not from a place of what do I need to just survive? What do I need to just make it through this day? But also, how can I also include that aspect of pleasure and creativity in my life just because I want to? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that in. Because I really love just thinking about, you know, in the triple goddess, the maiden, the mother and the and the crone. I really love like one of the other archetypes of the crone over the wise woman is the creatix, right? Who'd like literally is here to create. Whether, you know, the bigger beautiful stories could be of like the world and and land and humans and beings and flowers and all of that. But it's also like my own creativity. Like now I get to create just for the sake of creativity, for the art, for the process of it, for my hands making something just for myself. So not creating because I have to, because I was taught to be a mother, not because I have to, because I was taught that my worthiness is attached to work where it gives me income or money in my hands. But now I get to create for my own pleasure. And again, you know, noticing that nuance, not everyone has that privilege to do so. And yet I love the idea of being able to have my own time be for me and my own pleasure and my day look like however I want it to be. So creativity doesn't always have to be tied to something that has a a thing at the end that I can hold in my hands, right? But just being able to create my day, create my dream, right? To fulfill these visions that I've had for myself. So I love the idea of, of I keep having this image, maybe because my mom before she died was a painter for a long time. And that was one thing she did for herself. She didn't do it to sell it. She didn't do it for anyone else. And now like I'm surrounded by her, her paintings and her works in progress that she had. And I love like that was one thing that she did for herself. And um, I don't know if you know who Marion Woodman is. 
Um, but she's a, a Jungian analyst, um, originally from, I think, Winnipeg, but from Canada, who really talked about these archetypes. And I really love the concept that she brought up called peripheral existence, right? So a lot of women are taught to live on someone else's periphery, right? So even in the family that they were in, they were in the wood, in the background, you know, like those beautiful, but also frustrating photographs of babies back in the turn of the century in the early 1900s that were held clearly by a woman, but the woman was put in the shadows or in, you know, behind a veil or behind a curtain, like her existence was on the periphery of her child's. So one thing I loved about my mom deciding, and I don't actually know when and why she decided it, but she decided she wanted to learn to paint when I think I was in high school. Right. And I do think now Now I won't be able to ask her, but I do think it's because of menopause and like wanting to now notice who else is she besides my mother, besides a wife. And like she painted all the time for years, right? So I love the idea. She painted and created for herself. That was a long answer. No, (laughs) it was beautiful. And I think that what I'd like to ask you next is... Some people, as you alluded to earlier when you were giving your answer, is that, um, you know, some people might not have an entire day to be creative. Some people might just have little moments in time. And so do you have any practical tips and suggestions for people who would like to explore that, but who maybe still have responsibilities and a job and all of those things that maybe their time limit is 10 minutes a day? What would you suggest for them? Yeah, that's a great question. I'm a big fan of ritual and and rhythm, but I really love, you know, having a ritual practice. So whether it's a morning ritual or a Sunday evening ritual, but something just gives me time, like allocated time, designated time, similar to what we would do for a work event, a doctor's appointment or kids schedule and saying like, this is my sacred time. So mine happens to be Sunday evenings, as I mentioned that, like that is my sacred time that I do just for me. And it's blocked off. And my partner and I both have that agreement. And I do it more throughout the week. But that is a time that is solely mine. And I love that. What we also do, though, is I usually suggest to folks that I'm supporting, especially in this rite of passage. So let's say they've become a parent and now they're wanting to integrate their parent identity into all their older parts. And like, what do they want to bring forward, right? We're not meant to bounce back in air quotes, but how do I bring what parts of me I loved before I became a parent into my new phase of life as I'm also now a parent? And so one thing I ask people to do is like, let's remember those dreams you used to have. You know, part of narrative therapy is really looking at not just our strengths and our backstory, but our dreams and our goals and our hopes for life. And so really being able to remember like, Maybe as a teen, I personally can really remember loving fashion and style and getting all those magazines and watching fashion television every Sunday, right? And really kind of wanting to visit that again, right? And what does that look like now? Or maybe it could be, you know, getting a magazine that really speaks to gardening or having a writing ritual, right? Or maybe it means just looking at a group you know, online or in person where you can start coming to a monthly drop-in, right? Or maybe it means just like sitting with some journal prompts and asking yourself, like, you know, what is it that brings you pleasure just thinking about it now, right? What maybe inner child or younger part of you really wants to be seen again? Like there's something so beautiful about her getting our hands dirty with paint or clay and just seeing where it goes, 
right? But I think the biggest question, what you asked is, how do we make time for it in the same way we make time for all these other things that feel important? Yeah, 100%. And I think one takeaway that I really want to highlight from your beautiful answer and our conversation together is that pleasure and being creative doesn't have to mean that it results, first of all, in something that you can hold in your hands. And it doesn't mean being all in or going all the way. It doesn't have to be an entire painting that you've created in order to count. It can just be taking that time to look at it and imagine it and conceptualize it. And the signal that you're sending both to yourself and to those around you is that this time is mine to do whatever I want to creatively do with it. Absolutely. Yep. And and I think it's a reminder too, it's about being creative versus doing something for the sake of productivity, right? That's where we start to feel more tethered to the toxic productivity of our culture, right? So creating is a being. It's not necessarily a doing practice, right? It's being creative, right? So yeah, just sitting with that. I love that. I feel like that needs to become one of those Instagram quotes with a really pretty background (laughs) behind it. It's not about doing, it's about being. It makes a lot of sense in this moment. (laughs) Yeah. So let's talk about a a little bit about building community Mm. and surrounding yourself with people who have, who value this as something that they want in their lives. What do you suggest for people who don't organically have that? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is one of those blessings and curses of social media, right? I can't help but go there and notice that too, right? Like that's how you and I know each other, even though we are in the same spheres in the same city, give or take, right? Just noticing too, it's social media that helps us feel connected. Um, And I think too, it's hard not to, you know, in the context of COVID and this pandemic we've experienced is also noticing, you know, what do we miss the most when we were in our various lockdowns, right? Or needing to feel as safe as possible at home. And I think it's also noticing first and foremost, how do I hold in reverence my own company to myself? And then noticing from that place, right? Like, how do I feel at home with myself? And how do I offer from that place to be with others? And so this is where social media sometimes can be really helpful. So there's a few Instagram accounts that I follow that are art therapists or creative folks, right? That just inspire me to dance. You know, I dance a lot. I grew up dancing, but I don't always post that. That's very personal. It's almost kind of like a, like my own kind of sacred time is to dance. But then there's been some other folks who I've joined you know, to write with or to make things with something I've been doing with my own circle of friends. I've been hosting um, literally in separate words, witchcraft events where I've made spell jars with them. I've invited them to that practice. I'm making something this coming weekend, which is witch ladders with my friends. And so it's literally making things with our hands that come from a very witchy place. And I love that. And like, they don't identify as witches like I do, but they love that I offer that. And so it's just sitting with that. Um, But I think your question is valid. I keep coming back to that too, around how do I build community um, in a world that makes it hard to be vulnerable and meeting new people? And so sometimes it could be just a community of two, right? And just seeing like, who's one other person that feels aligned with this thing that I love to do? 
And so I participated in a pretty great dance class in the fall that's been ongoing, but I haven't been able to come back to it yet. But a couple of friends have, and I love it. I love that we can dance and share space together and not talk for two hours, right? So being together doesn't always mean being verbal or in person. It could be virtual. It could be um, something small for a few minutes, or it can be a bigger practice. Um, And I I love, you know, in the practice of self-compassion, that shared experience principle around like, if I'm picking up this magazine, and I know lots of folks also had, um, sometimes I love just even going to that magazine social media place and notice like other people's comments. So it, it feels so scary for me to be included in community or maybe, you know, my own trauma makes it hard to trust other people. What's another way that I can feel in connection with them? Right. And maybe just noticing those words that are similar, but just different enough. Like I can still feel connected and not have community. I love that. Brilliant answer. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. the next question I want to ask just to wrap up here is if there was one piece of advice that you could give somebody who is maybe just on the precipice of this change, maybe just entering cronehood, or maybe somebody who's had it on their mind for a while, but they're just considering, oh, this could be me too. What advice would you give them? Oh, I love that question. Well, it's funny because um, I just turned, well, 47. So I'll just like officially say that's how old I am in December. And my partner surprised me with a gift um, that I didn't ask for, but it was by an author that I love. And it's a book called Hagitude. I don't know if you know it by Sharon Blackie. Yeah. <laughs> I need to get a copy of that. That sounds right up my alley. Amazing. I think it is. Here it is. I brought it. It's close by. Reimagining the second half of life. Okay. okay. So I'm going to go ahead and put that in the show notes so yes. people can find yeah. it. Hagitude. Yes, I'm going to make a note Hagitude. right now. Right? Um, and it, and the first sentence is for any woman. So for any person over 50 who's ever asked, what now? Who do I want to be? And I was like, sweetie, I didn't turn 50. but then I realized like what a beautiful gift to tell me just before that precipice like I think we need to start readying ourselves before like lots of folks become older but not wiser they become older but not elders so how do we learn to accept this transition before we need to think about it like menopause was something I knew about in theory years and years ago, I knew one day I'd not, I wouldn't be bleeding any longer. But the concept is so othered and put in the shadows that now that I'm faced with it in my, you know, perimenopausal experience, I'm like, oh, I need to know one person who's just a few steps ahead of me that I can ask. Not someone who's the expert because they're 70 or 80, but someone who's 55. And so what I've done, and again, Therapy is all about being vulnerable, right? And so when people trust me with their intimate things, that means that I also have courage to ask people who are just a little bit older than me and and kind of giving them permission, of course, to answer the question or not. But now I have my few wise women coven, my wiser folks, my wiser early elders to say like, hey, I'm about to do this. I'm starting to do this. Can you tell me about your experience with it? Right. So it's not just kind of like revering from a distance, but like bringing them closer in. And I really like someone who's like just a few steps ahead of me, not the quote unquote expert in it. 
I love that because it's very human to be still in it as opposed to I figured it all out. It's yeah, I'm still in it. Exactly. And I'm having the human experience too. And I'm just a millisecond ahead of you. So I can tell you what I did. And maybe that'll work for you and maybe it won't. But at least it'll mean that you don't feel so alone. That's it. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Well, I know that everybody listening is going to want to connect with you and potentially work with you. So please let everybody know where they can find you on social and otherwise. Yeah, yeah, happy to do that. So as I alluded to, I am on um, social media. And right now I'm, you know, I have a happy relationship with um, Instagram. So I'm at Vanya, V as in Vanessa, A-N-I-A underscore S as in Sam, U-K-O-L-A. Um, you can find me there on Instagram. And um, sometimes I post articles and a few more things on Facebook, where I also have an account. And right now I've been loving, since the pandemic, I started writing a monthly newsletter that falls um, comes out every full moon. And it's just resources and toys and things I've noticed over the past month. And so you can go to my website, which is uh, vanyasicola.ca to sign up for that. Amazing. I will make sure that I put all of those links in the show notes so people can click and find them easily. Vanya, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your time and your wisdom so generously with us today. And I hope that we'll have you back another time to talk about this again. We're just getting started. Yeah. Happy to do that. And thanks for having me, Michelle. If you are loving what you're learning in the podcast and you want to take this work to a deeper level, let's work together. If you are a resident of Ontario, Canada, we can work together in a clinical setting, both virtually or in person. Or if you want help managing your mind around the perimenopausal transition and supercharging your self-confidence and body image, I can help you anywhere in the world through coaching. To learn more about your options for working with me, head to michellecaffler.com and click on work with me on the overhead menu. I can't wait to talk with you. Thank you.